Good morning. This is really nice. I didn't want that to end. Um, I, uh, my name is Joe Steinitz. I'm from uh, Grace Fellowship in Timonium. And I've known uh, Jason for lots of long time. We had offices next to each other, which was a lot of fun. He would crank up the rush sometimes. I'm not sure that was so much fun. But other than that, it was a lot of fun having him as a neighbor. And it's fun looking across the room here, seeing people I haven't seen in a long time. And this is really sweet. And hearing birds chirp and children and just very nice. You guys have a precious thing going on here. I hope you know that. All right. Well, we're, um, uh, this is the verse that uh, Jason has assigned for this week. And it's a beautiful sentiment, really. Um, he mentioned that uh, during his growing up years in Sunday school, that uh, prayer group that he was in at his uh, church, this is the prayer that they ended, they ended their Sunday school class with. Um, I mentioned to another friend that I was going to be speaking on this verse, and he was mentioned as a kid, he was in this youth movement called Christian Endeavor. And this is the um, way that they would uh, close out their times as well. Uh, and I actually, I went and I, I looked on the Wikipedia, which is, of course, the source of all truth, uh, to find out <laughs> if indeed that was, that's the way they, it was part of their liturgy, and I couldn't find anything. But I did find that actually one of the past presidents of Christian or, uh, of Endeavor was... Uh, Daniel Poling, no doubt a relative of Jason's. So, um, you know, I love the idea of the Lord keeping watch over my friends and me, and so it's a verse that gives great comfort. Um, there have actually been um, couples, they have these coins that you can get with this verse on it, um, for couples that when they're separated from one another can be comforted. So, I mean, it is a, it is a precious sentiment, really. Um, but let's go and look at the context a little bit to see uh, who it is that's blessing one another uh, with this verse. Um, and before we do that, let's open in prayer. Lord, we are grateful that uh, you do watch over us and that you are a God who sees Lord, and just this morning as I'm with this group, I'm just um, brought to a, a, a new appreciation of just the beauty of fellowship, the beauty of community. And um, Lord, did you want to foster that? And I pray that uh, through our time this morning that that would grow, that we'd have a greater appreciation of understanding your word. And Lord, that we'd leave here equipped uh, to face the world. Uh, and to be your ambassadors, that you'd get the glory you deserve uh, here and among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start with our first character in this uh, blessing. It's Laban. Now, Laban is one of those uh, people we're not really sure what to do with, are we? Okay, on one hand, Laban uh, was instrumental in helping Abraham find a wife for his son Isaac. Uh, He was also the one to provide his daughters and their handmaidens who ended up being the mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, uh, a pretty important role, I would say. On the other hand, he was a pretty sleazy character. Okay, and we mentioned Isaac a moment ago, so let's talk about him. He was the father of Jacob and Esau, and well, what do we know about his relationship with them? Well, we know he was quite fond of Esau, uh, but he didn't quite know what to do with Jacob, did he? Um, Who was clearly his mother's favorite. 
Okay, Esau was a man's man. He was hairy. He loved the outdoors. He had a rec room in his hunting lodge with trophies all over it from animals he had killed on hunts. When he watched nature shows, he thought how that animal might taste on a spit. That's the way Esau faced life. Now, you had Jacob, on the other hand, who was a little different. And this was a problem because you see his mother... Uh, inquired about God about the turmoil she was feeling in her womb when she was carrying the two boys. And God revealed to her that the older shall serve the younger, which had to be quite puzzling to her as these boys were growing up because here you had Esau, who was the tough and conquering type, and then you had Jacob, who played the violin, was in the chess club, and watched cooking shows. Okay, so what do we have here? Well, we have attention. We have uneasiness. We have circumstances that feel like there's one logical outcome, and yet God has said the logical outcome is not his plan, which raises the question, how is his plan going to be implemented when it seems like there's no way for that to happen? And so let's see what our friend Jacob does here. First, a little bit about the name Jacob, okay? His name means deceiver or heel grabber, okay? Now, how did he get that name? Well, it happened at birth. Now, I don't know if you all have seen this picture. It's been making the rounds on the internet. But if you look closely, and it's hard to tell from a distance, uh, but those two little twins there are actually holding hands. They came out of the womb holding hands. And um, there wasn't a dry eye in the delivery room uh, when these two twins were born. Um, that is not the case, however, uh, with Jacob and Esau. This in Genesis chapter 25, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's Genesis chapter 25, verses 24 through 26. Genesis 25, 24 to 26. And it starts, this is uh, referring to Rebekah. When her days were being delivered, were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So you can see the competition has started between these two from the very start. Now let's look at what happens next. Okay, so years later, Jacob is preparing some stew. Esau comes in famished from a hunt. Jacob offers to sell Esau some stew in exchange for his birthright as firstborn. And Esau agrees, thus repudiating his birthright. Now, what just happened here? Well, everybody in that culture knew about the practice of primogeniture, which is where the eldest son got twice as much as the other son. So if you have two sons, you essentially take all your earthly goods, divide them into thirds, and give the oldest son two-thirds and the second one one-third, even though the second one was only born seconds after the first. Now, Knowing his brother to be in a weakened state of mind at this point, Jacob capitalizes on it by negotiating another th uh, third of an inheritance, which isn't a bad exchange for some stew. Now, what do we learn here? Okay, well, we learn, we know from Genesis 27:11 that Esau was a hairy man and that Jacob was smooth skin. Well, it wasn't only Jacob's skin that was smooth. He was a smooth operator. He was wily. He was a manipulator. And this is a theme we're going to see throughout his life. Okay? Another example. Okay? Isaac was old and blind. That's their father. Okay? One day he asked Esau to take his weapons and go out and hunt some wild game. All right? So he could 
cook it up and eat it with him, and then Isaac would confer his blessing, his firstborn blessing on Esau. Okay, well, Rebecca, Rebecca had been eavesdropping, all right? She'd be listening in on Isaac's conversation, just waiting for the day that this might happen, and she sprung into action. Now, you know, much has been made over the fact that Jacob is a manipulator, and even so, with his name meaning deceiver. But, you know, we have to admit that he comes by this honestly, doesn't he? Okay? His grandfather lied about his wife being a sister to protect her. His son, Isaac, did something similar. And then we see Jacob's mom operating and deceiving. So we can tend to be a little hard on Jacob. And indeed, he was a smooth operator. But as they say, the acorn does not fall far from the oak. Okay? So Esau goes out to hunt, but Rebecca springs into action. She sends Jacob to the flock to grab two young kids that she would prepare to taste like game. I guess she was joining Jacob as he was watching the cooking shows. Now, Jacob's a little worried about this plan, okay? Certainly Isaac is going to figure out. After all, Esau was hairy, he wasn't. But never fear, Rebecca had it all figured out, okay? She placed animal skins on Jacob's hands and neck to give the impression of hairiness and clothed him in Esau's best garments so that he had the smell of the outdoors on them, okay? And although Jacob had a voice that did sounded differently than Esau, the ruse that Rebekah had devised worked like a charm, and Isaac proceeded to give the blessing to Jacob. Now, no sooner had Jacob left that Esau arrived with the game he had cooked, okay? Now, Jacob's ruse was discovered, but the deed could not be undone. An oral blessing had legal validity and could not be revoked. There was only one blessing for the firstborn, and Jacob got it. Esau was heartbroken and angry. Now, if you think the family was dysfunctional before, this latest scheme really made things toxic. So Rebecca soon learned about Esau's plot to kill Jacob when his father died. So again, she got to work. She convinced Isaac to send Jacob off to stay with their brother's family marry there. After all, that would be a less toxic environment, right? Okay. So, Jacob sets out for Haran, and he has nothing. Okay, he's leaving with nothing. Little food for the journey, perhaps, but he does not have much else. He's got an older brother who wants to kill him. He's going to a place that he knows nothing about. Okay, meeting with relatives he's never met. Okay, and this is the time when he goes to sleep at night, his head is laying on a stone, he's using a stone as a pillow, and he has that dream, Jacob's Ladder, the song about Jacob's Ladder, you know, the ladder reaching up to heaven with angels of God ascending and descending on it. And God spoke to Jacob, and he gave him a promise. And let's look at this promise, okay? This is in Genesis chapter 28, okay? And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Okay, now what's fascinating about this promise, now just as you see, I underlined, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's going to be a theme you're going to see a couple times here, because this covenant with Jacob is very similar to the one that was given to his father, Isaac. Okay, as a matter of fact, almost 
exactly the same points. And again, if you look, we're not going to read the whole thing here, but at the very bottom, by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And this is interesting. This is Isaac's covenant with God because it's just like the one that was given to his father, Abraham. Okay? And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but in the very bottom, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God has made this covenant with father, son, and grandson. Okay? All of them are hearing this covenant here, and all of them have this theme here of in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay? Now let's talk about these covenants. This covenant is the way that God, in a sense, is going to begin the process of undoing the effects of the fall. Okay, so this is significant, all right? You basically have the whole Bible up to this point being lots of bad news, okay? First you had the fall, then you had the uh, flood, and then after that you had the Tower of Babel, okay? So after creation, it's not real good for those first 12 chapters, all right? And then suddenly, God begins the process of redeeming creation, and how's he going to do? Well, he's going to take one family, he's going to put his hand on a blessing on them, he's going to give them lots of descendants to be his conduit of blessing to the nations and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed okay basically he was blessing one family one clan for the purpose of blessing the nations. so you've heard of the jews referred to as the chosen people and you have to ask chosen for what okay one it's just this to be a blessing to the nations okay this was god's chosen way to bless the nations they were to be a kingdom of priests a kingdom of priests, it says in Exodus. Now, what's a priest to do? He mediates between God and man. All right? They were to be a kingdom of priests for the nations. Okay? You know, one last point about this. You know, this isn't one of the ways God was going to redeem creation to himself. Okay? This was the way. This is God's plan for redeeming a lost world to himself. There's no plan B. This is it. And Jacob is this plan. Jacob is plan A. Okay? Sneaky Jacob, sneaky deceiving Jacob is the plan. Jacob is now the main link in God's plan for bringing humanity to himself. Now, what do you think about that? Do you think we got a strong link in the chain here? No, we don't. Okay? Let's look at Jacob's pros and cons for a minute. Okay? If God is doing a PowerPoint to everybody in heaven explaining what his plan is for redeeming humanity to himself, okay? you know, the heavenly host could be forgiven for their tepid support or their polite, subdued applause. Let's look at this. His cons, okay, he hangs out by the tents. He doesn't go anywhere. All right, his brother wants him dead. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He comes from a dysfunctional family. The pros, he's good with livestock. All right, I'm not sure that would convince me. Okay, he was not a good candidate. He was not the right guy. At least it didn't seem so. Well, what do we learn from this? Okay, what's our takeaway this morning? Okay, you know, God wants to use us, and God uses regular folks who have terrible flaws. And it doesn't matter if you're too stupid, too broken, too sinful, too low class, too uneducated, too bitter, too abused, too many secrets, too many bad decisions, or if you're sneaky, okay? God can use you. He can use anybody for his purposes. Okay, now we may feel that we're all these things, but it's interesting. If God can use a knucklehead like Jacob, he can use a knucklehead like me. Okay, he can use anybody. Now, you know, some of you might be saying to yourself, you know, why does he share this? Okay, we already know it. 
this is something we we figured out, Joe. This is this is Christianity 101. You know, a couple of months ago, I was speaking at an event, and um, the lady who was leading worship beforehand, she came up to me afterwards, and she said she just really struggled with not feeling loved by God, not feeling like God wanted to use her. Okay, she said she felt like God's redheaded stepchild. Anybody ever feel like that? Okay, she did. And, you know, this is incredibly common, I'm noticing, in our culture. Even with all the efforts of our education system to improve our self-esteem, this is something that a lot of people are feeling, okay? Uh, and I, I struggled with this for many years, which I think is why God led this woman to talk with me. Now, in my case, I went, looked at a concordance, and I found all the, the verses that had to do with God's love for me, and I meditated on them for months and months because I had to retrain my thinking, and she had to do that as well. And so I had sent her a number of those verses. Okay, my point is, if God can use Jacob, he can use us, and he will use us, and we don't have to be perfect first. Okay, let's go back to the story here. All right, so Jacob meets his uncle Laban. Okay, he finally gets to Haran, meets uncle Laban, and after, soon after, he agrees to work there seven years to earn Laban's daughter Rachel as his wife. The seven years pass quickly. And Jacob was set to claim his wages, was set to, to get married. At the night of the wedding, Laban substituted his older daughter, Leah, for Rachel. And Jacob did not un- realize the substitution until the next morning. Don't ask me how this happened. I do not know. Okay, We can only guess that weddings in Haran were had a lot of alcohol flowing freely, okay? But beyond this, it's hard to speculate, okay? What we do know is that he felt cheated, and he let Laban know his feelings. But Laban insisted that according to a local custom, which apparently Jacob hadn't been made aware of, uh, the oldest had to marry before the younger, okay? So then he proposed that Jacob work another seven years for Rachel. So Jacob agreed and put in his time. So here we have one of these ironies that is so rich. You've got Jacob, who's our deceiver, our manipulator, who learned a lot of his methods from his family in general and from his mother in particular, and he meets the master manipulator in Laban. Okay? None of us is surprised to realize that Laban is Rebekah's brother. Okay? As mentioned before, the acorn does not fall too far from the oak. All right, so we know how the story progresses. Okay? Jacob, in addition to marrying Leah, does indeed marry Rachel seven years later. Now, as you can imagine, things are getting tense with this relationship with Laban. Okay, our two master manipulators, all right? Finally, Jacob has had enough. He held a family council with his two wives and told them how God had blessed them even though their father had cheated him and changed his wages ten times, okay? So Jacob organized his escape caravan while Laban was away with the sheep. And before they leave, Rachel goes and steals her father's household gods, Now, we don't know why she does this. The text doesn't really say. According to local belief at the time, however, these household gods, these teraphim, were sort of not really what we think of when we think of idols. They're more sort of one part good luck charm and one part power source, okay? And some ancient writings at that time indicate that the holder of these household gods would actually be heir to the person's estate who owned them. So you can see why Laban's a little panicked about this. And so off he goes with his relatives to pursue Jacob and his family. Okay? So Laban finally catches up with him, accuses him of stealing his household gods. Of course, Jacob was not aware of what Rachel had done. Okay? And so he said that the one found with the gods should be put to death. 
All right. Now, the story was tense up to this point. Now it gets really tense. Now, Rachel, who's a clever schemer in her own right, hid the idol in a camel saddle and sat on the saddle in the tent when her father searched the tent. All right. Now, she asked her father not to make her move. She claimed it was her time of the month. So the idol was never found. And at this point, Jacob's the one who gets indignant. So if you have your Bibles, you can look in Genesis 31, verses 36 and following. That's Genesis 31, 36. Then Jacob became angry and contented with Laban. And Jacob said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you hotly pursue me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring of you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands. So he rendered judgment last night. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have borne? So now let's come. Let's make a covenant. You and I, let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Now Jacob called it, excuse me, now Laban called it Jager Sadutha, But Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid and Mizpah. For he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. All right, so this is our little sentimental prayer. This is the context for it. He goes on in verse 50. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. So you see here, our lovely little sentimental prayer is actually a prayer of fear of the bad intentions of the other party. They don't trust each other as far as they can throw one another. Okay, go on in verse 51. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm, and you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to me for harm. So this prayer that we use to end our meetings, to comfort married couples when they're apart, to confer God's protection on others, is actually saying, you better not do anything bad to me, you bum, because even if you do, God sees. Okay? If I don't see you, God sees you. Okay? Which brings me to my second application. Our first application is if God can use somebody as integrity challenged as Jacob, in such a significant role as the redemption of humanity, certainly he can probably use me. Okay, But there's another lesson here, and that is that God does see. May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. You know, I think both Laban and Jacob realize that God really does see. 
these master manipulators finally came to the realization that they can rely on nothing else over the except for the fact that God watches, God sees. Now, do I think that Laban and Jacob stopped being manipulators after this? No. They probably kept on. As a matter of fact, we've got some examples of Jacob later on who kind of, you know, he didn't really mend his ways. But they both realized that God sees, that God sees, God watches. Second Chronicles 69 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You know, we don't think of God watching, do we? It's, it seems sort of like an old-fashioned concept, something from an earlier era, sort of Santa claus You know, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You know, but he is watching, he is noticing. All right? As a matter of fact, one of the earliest names for God was given to him by Hagar, Okay, the mother of Ishmael, when she and Ishmael were stuck in the desert about to die and God came to their rescue, she referred to God as the God who sees, the God who sees, okay? And Jacob and Laban are now realizing that he is a God who sees, okay? He sees their manipulation, but he also knows their circumstances. He is not unaware. He sees. He watches. So, folks, as we close this morning. Let's not be discouraged, okay? Everything that's going on in the world right now, I'm afraid to, afraid to turn on the news just of what I'm going to see, but everything that's going on in the world today, God sees. He sees you, he sees your circumstances, he sees me, and he sees it all. And one day, it will be made right. So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who goes and uses all of us. And we don't have to have this long list of character flaws cleaned up before the, you do use us. We're thankful that you use us how we are. That doesn't mean you don't want to see us change, our behaviors change, but Lord, you do use us, any one of us. And Lord, that you are a God who sees. You see their pain, you see our circumstances, you also see what's going on in the world that changes. Lord, none of this is taking you by surprise. You are a God who sees and a God who works even in the midst of it. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that we know that. And Lord, for those of us who don't, I pray that you would drill it into our hearts in a powerful way that we realize that you're a God who deeply, deeply loves his children. In Jesus' name, amen.